Hello and welcome to The Tangent Tree. My name is Samantha Stephen. My name is Simon Dillon. And today on The Tangent Tree, we have a very exciting podcast, which I look forward to massively. Musicals. Ah yes, musicals. But with a caveat, musicals, the classics. Oh, the classics. Okay, so we'll, are we saying up to a certain point in history? I think I think we're going classic, let's say, through to the 80s. Okay, through to the 80s. That sounds good. Okay, so I won't mention... <laughs> The greatest show. But you will because you're now mentioning them. (laughs) Well, I mean, I had on my list of notes, my very um, high-tech list of notes here. Simon's Simon's come prepared with pieces of paper today, and I'm sitting here with an iPad, showing either a generational difference, which is maybe offensive, or the difference between somebody who's technical and a technophobe. Uh, well, I just want something tangible. I don't want something that's going to switch. An iPad is off. tangible. Yeah, but they they just switch off and they do weird things and suddenly they upload things from, you know, the ethereal void. No, technophobe. Yes, but this doesn't crash. <laughs> you know, this doesn't do weird. I mean, it crumples. It does crumple actually. That's No, true. don't crumple it. <laughs> no, okay. Okay. So, by the way, this is the start of series 3. It is. is. Yes. Yay. Hello. Welcome. We're so excited. Welcome back if you're returning. And then welcome if this is the first episode. It's probably sounding a bit weird. Maybe we should explain Um, as a refresher why we do what we do. Yes, but um, in a slightly weird way. Okay. Well, I mean, it's already strange. (laughs) So the reason why this podcast is called The Tangent Tree is for years, Simon and I have been talking because we worked together for a long time. We still technically we sort of pseudo work together. we pseudo work together now but for many years we worked together in the same office i started out in simon's department um then i went on to become a tv producer and simon is the head of a scheduling department and so we used to talk a lot about everything and i grew up watching a lot of films and if you have ever listened to this or you listen to this episode you'll find out that simon is like Rain Man for movies <laughs> i hope that's not offensive for you but you not know in the everything no um and so we just used to have the most interesting conversations that would segue from one subject to another subject to another subject and people would gather around us to hear us talk in person so we figured surely this is a podcast but live yes well you figured that and 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 sort of anyway i'll tell you what though yeah i I don't hate the sound of my own voice as much as i used to oh so this is also like therapy Uh, well okay (laughs) I'm very excited that you are being redeemed, Simon. Well, should we talk about musicals? Was that what we were supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. Yes. No, I, 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 and, and I was going to talk about, or not talk about, and mention the things that we're not going to talk about in this podcast, because we're not going to go beyond the 80s, right? Okay. So we're not going to talk about Moulin Rouge, La La Land, The Greatest Showman, or anything like that. Which are all surprisingly good musicals, considering they're modern. Except The Greatest Showman, which I well, wasn't keen on. Uh, do you know, because I'm not sure I know this, what the first musical was? The first ever musical in, well, I mean, obviously, well, you know, the jazz singer, right? Obviously, the coming of sound with, with, um, you know, that was a key moment. But um, I think, I could be wrong about this, but I think it was MGM with the, you know, or or something MGM did, or was it the Busby Berkeley musicals? I don't know. um, That they were the sort of, well, certainly the Busby Berkeley ones were the ones that pioneered. I ought to know this, really. I feel like you should. I just bigged you up and now it's like, what? I know. I actually, honestly, off the top of my head, I know that I know you're Googling it. Okay. <laughs> I do know that the, obviously the jazz iPad. singer was massively a significant moment in all of that. Yeah. Um, you know, with Al Johnson and, you know, you ain't heard nothing yet and so on. And I'm, I think that's where it started, but I could be wrong. So it's worth checking. I don't think it was a, the other, 
yeah. jazz singer. I am right. 1927. 1927. 1927. Okay. But you nailed it. The jazz singer. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And obviously, you know, the famous line, you ain't heard nothing yet. But by the way, we should sort of from that talk about singing in the rain. Well, I was going to ask about because I love singing in the rain. I think that for me, I would say that's one of the first because A, it was in quite bright colours and it was interesting because of the subject matter it was discussing in Hollywood, which relates quite closely to musicals Yes, in terms of an artist who's not recognised for her voice because it's attributed to another actor or actress, which happened all the time. Yes, it did. And And still... I mean, I know it it does happen sometimes now. I mean, it's not... I mean, this is worth getting into a little bit because... Singing in the Rain, first of all, I'll just say this, is my all-time favourite musical. I mean, it's it's my, a wonderful my, musical. It, it is a fantastic... It's in my top 20 favourite films of all time. Um, I love it. Obviously, the subject matter is fascinating because it's look. It's looking back, obviously, on the... On obviously, the, on spoilers. The sound. But we're hoping you've seen this. Well, there. you know, the, 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 the premise of the film is essentially that, you know, Gene Kelly is... Uh, a silent movie actor who falls in love with Debbie Reynolds's character who thinks the movies are a bit absurd and foolish and kind of because, you know, there's no dialogue in them and and so on. And with the coming of the jazz singer, Hollywood switches to talkies, but the transition is far from smooth because a lot of the silent actors and actresses were no good with dialogue. Their voices were... and, And a lot of careers were ruined. And... You know, it's interesting because Gene Hackman, with the, with the help of an elocution coach, makes the transition fairly well. You know, the sort of Moses supposes his toes are roses. Sequence. Gene Hackman or Gene Kelly? Gene Kelly. Did I say Gene Hackman? <laughs> yeah, you did. I was Do like, you know, I'm that tired. I'm quite positive he's not in that film I did, he's this so I very believe, young. <laughs> I mean Gene Kelly, so I can't believe I said Gene Hackman. I, was, I, I need more, more um, caffeine. Anyway, so... What happened was the um, so you have that whole funny scene, you know, with the Moses supposes his toes are roses. Well done, well done. Okay. Um, so, but and of course, so he makes the transition just about okay. But then his co-star, oh, I can't think of her name now, but she is. Um, there's a whole thing going on where in, in, in they're supposedly romantically linked in the gossip columns, but actually, of course, they're not in real life at yeah. all. Um, and she can't basically can't. Her voice is horrible, horrible. Yeah. So they dub her. With Debbie, the voice of Debbie Reynolds's character, and of course, at the same time, Gene Kelly and, and Debbie Reynolds fall in love, and it's a lovely little romantic story. And obviously, it's got great singing numbers and so on and so on. But Amazing it, sets, but it is very, very, um, a very actually fairly honest reflection, I think, of what happened then that that people did just uh, lose their careers as a result of the coming of sound. So yes, but it's a great musical as well, obviously. Yeah, I think um, singing the rain is a fantastic move, musical and film because the use of sets is very classic old Hollywood, yes. which, I mean, maybe we, we will need to talk about more modern musicals because well, in, well, in relation to it, La La Land yes. pays so much homage. Thank you, yes. No, I think we are going to have to. <laughs> okay. Okay, so I'll just, where we're relevant. Okay, so La La Land, specific, which I adore, by the way. I think La La Land is a wonderful film, but just restricting my discussion of that to the to the fact that you watch it and it feels like a 1950s mm. classic well, it's the use musical. of color yes the use of sets and the use of the way it's directed the way it's not kind of whiplash 18 frame mtv cutting mm. it's the movement it's of the, the camera it's actually yeah and it's also long takes 
okay mm. and the sadly lost art of tap dancing which is something that i love yeah and i I, th- I lament that hardly anyone can see well i think people obviously people can do it but it just seems to be something that's increasingly rare especially when you see it on screen in a musical and i love that i love that it wasn't brash and abrasive and obnoxiously loud and it actually did feel like a 50s musical you know there's that little scene where ryan gosting and um Emma Stone, uh, uh, they're doing a musical number together. And then suddenly a a mobile phone rings and that suddenly, oh, it's modern. You know, it brings you out of that. I thought I was in a 50s musical. And the other thing it does, which happens in Singing in the Rain, is it has that great big sequence near the end, which is akin in a sort of fantasy parallel universe, which deliberately evokes the sequence in Singing in the Rain, which has nothing to do with the rest of the film, where yeah. Gene Kelly's on this big elaborate musical number, or sort of, you know, the God, a dance yeah, sequence. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, I have to... I, I, <laughs> You've got to sing. Yeah, <laughs> and um, so all of that, which I remember the first time I saw Singing in the Rain, thinking, this has absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the film, but it's really cool, you know. I mean, it's Gene Kelly, let's be honest. I, Gene Kelly can go sing and dance, and I will watch him and not complain about it. Also, ever. I mean, I mean, obviously, he's in other great films like *On the Town* is another favorite of mine with Gene Kelly. And, yes. You know, there's, there's, there's also. Um, I just what? Sorry, one other thing I wanted to say about *Singing in the Rain*. There's that um, incredible number *Make Him Laugh*. Yes. Yeah, which is just one of the best comedy slapstick musical pieces that I've ever seen in a film. I mean, it was it nice just... because they they had a musical number for Friends. Yeah. So it wasn't romantic yes. because I think for uh, before that in hollywood a lot of songs were romantic songs yes and today i mean if you listen to music generally aside from musicals most of it is about romance yes so it's nice to have essentially a buddy comedy in a song well i i I just really like is this a really wonderful aside i mean is it is it essential to the plot no but is it brilliant yes you know and it's it's a really good musical slapstick set piece that just you know you can watch it as a standalone piece of it's a piece of art as far as I'm concerned. So I have a question for you. In terms of musicals, what's your definition? Oh, well, okay. Because this is important to okay. establish. This is very important. Okay. Musicals for me, it's a treatment and not a genre. People think about musicals as a genre. Okay. But actually that's nonsense because we have romantic musicals. We have historic musicals, war musicals, horror musicals you know fantasy musicals it's it's so really to me the musical thing is a treatment you know i mean disney animated all the classic disney animations are musicals in that sense but it's not a genre it's a treatment well see that wasn't what i was getting at though in terms of there are some films that have music or songs in them but it doesn't make them a musical no i agree with you okay right what's your definition of a musical okay right now i know what you mean okay (laughs) so for example Currently in the cinemas, we have Yesterday with the, um, yes. the Beatles. Oh, it, it, I know by the time this is heard, it might have been and gone from cinemas. But, um, you know, the, 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 that's not a musical because it's about, uh, you know, it's about performers. OK, and by the same token, I would say A Star is Born is not a musical in, in that sense either. But something like, for example, Rocket Man, the recent Elton John biopic, is a musical because they take Elton John's songs and they're, they're not just, it's not just a sort of, okay, we... Him we, performing the song. Exactly. It's it's not some sort of, and it's it, it, it's a sort of fantasy in that sense because they've got, the, depending on the mood of the characters and the story at that point, they pick a song from the Elton John back catalogue and they'll have people dance to it, sing it, choreograph it and so on. And that is, I think a musical by definition is the musical numbers are about the what's happened. They're a comment on the plot or they're about the emotion of the character or 
Or sometimes they do advance the plot, but th- that's really what they're... And that, for me, the definition of a musical would be it's, it's music is used to tell the story. Yes. Well, sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it's used to describe the emotions or to... But that's still telling the story. I suppose. That's still moving the plot along in terms of character development or even transitioning them from one set to another set yes. or a dreamlike state, like singing in the rain. There's lots of different things it can do, but it's it's telling the story of that movie. Yes. Whereas if somebody's performing a song they wrote, it's not really telling which the is, story. Which goes back to what I said about it being a treatment. Yes rather than a genre in that 100%. sense. So I think that I think you're absolutely correct and I think that um, I think one of the things I love about musicals is that because some people don't like them because they think they're surreal uh, overly literal people okay yes. it's like oh people don't just burst into song and do this in real life it's like no but it's about the in what's going on inside the character at that point 100%. singing in the rain is just a brilliant metaphor for joy isn't it you know and and romantic joy specifically in that context well and I also think that musicals make some difficult subject matter easier to talk about, particularly in that time period. Yes, I agree. Does that with make you. sense? I agree with you. Um, so, for example, you've got things like My Fair Lady. Yes, that's a musical. Yes. Um, but it's talking about inequality between classes. Yes. Uh, a difference between social mobility, all of this kind of stuff. They're actually big things it's grappling with, which yes. some people may be like, oh, you're blowing it up bigger than it is. But no, it's, no, it it, is. it's a commentary on that. It absolutely is. I mean, obviously, uh, My Fair Lady derives from Pygmalion, the, you know, which wasn't obviously a musical that yes. George Bernard Shaw. Uh, but, you know, the the, the the thing I love about I mean, My Fair Lady is a terrific film. It's an amazing um, film. And Audrey Hepburn is wonderful. See, I mean, my favourite is Rex Harrison, because he's not someone who really can sing. But, well, not really. Not like he would walk out onto the voice and everybody would turn their chair for them. That's what I mean. He's not like a singer. But he is such a character in his voice when he communicates that you just... Like, I I would just get lost in his performance always. Yes, and I agree. And 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 he is very good. I also think as well... I mean, I love the relationship between him and Eliza. It's it's really beautifully done. And I do love the the transition, obviously, that you see in that in the, in that story. But you're right; it is about social mobility and class. And um, I, I've always loved. I mean, I think that I think the sequence comes just after the intermission. I, I've, obviously, I, I, yeah, I've seen it in the cinema. I've never seen it with an intermission. Well, no, I saw it in the cinema. Yeah, not in the original release. I wasn't alive then. But I was going to be like, wait, you are way older than I thought I, you were. I watch a lot of films on re-releases. Okay, you have to see. <laughs> Great films have to be seen in the cinema. My Fair Lady is no exception. Yes. I think it's just after the intermission when they have the Ascot sequence, which I've always loved. The Ascot sequence may be my favourite in that entire film. Yeah, it's brilliant. And uh, the whole thing is brilliant. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. It's a a wonderful film. Um, I do want to say one other thing about um, what you just... Pick up on what you said there about musicals sometimes are a commentary on difficult things socially and sometimes historically so for example cabaret okay about the rise of nazi germany yes i mean that has some bone chilling stuff in it i mean that i'm thinking of the sequence where um that sort of beautiful boy in the hitler youth who's singing tomorrow belongs to me i mean it's absolutely i can't that is one of the most terrifying things i've ever seen in a film ever yes i mean it's absolutely spine freezingly frightening and uh but obviously, again, um, it's a commentary. It, it, it's I love that I love that film because it's sort of obviously with the, you know we're looking back on history in that specific, like we are with My Fair Lady. But it's it's about something very very serious actually, 
And um, I love that film. I think it's a brilliant film. Well, because one of the, the reasons why I was talking about My Fair Lady was to pull us into Julie Andrews, who's oh, like okay. an icon in terms and of... I it off into No, Cameron, that's totally fine. It's, it's a tangent. But in terms of... Because she was in the running to actually play yes, Audrey Hepburn's Do you know why part? she didn't? She'd already done Sound of Music and Mary Poppins. But her voice is amazing. Because yeah. the question for you, would you class Victor Victoria as a musical? Hmm. Uh, not sure that I would. No, because no, I'm not sure it would. No, I'm not sure that I would. It's a good film, though. No, it's an amazing yeah. film and really interesting social commentary on gender yes. and gender roles and all sorts of stuff, which is one of the reasons I was thinking about it. But Julie Andrews, I think, I mean, probably the most known for musicals, having only done well, not that many. Not that many. I mean, one of the things, one of the things that that's, I mean, obviously Mary Poppins at the Sound of Music are the sort of two landmark musicals in Giants. the 60s. That, well, there were, there were others, obviously. I mean, there was Oliver, for example. But, <gasps> but we'll come to that. Yes. But I did want to talk about the Sound of Music because I, mean, I know there are some people who can't abide the Sound of Music. I mean, frankly, I feel sorry for them, but they, they do exist. Um, because they think it's saccharine, overly sentimental, you know. Kind of, and, Until you know, the Nazis and, show up. Yeah, but you know what, you know what though? <laughs> it's true. It is. Yeah. Okay. It absolutely is. And it's great. Yes. I, I love that about the film. I mean, it's the, the thing. I mean, I, I never get sick of watching The Sound of Music. It's it's still a great evening's entertainment, even after all these years. And it just has. Especially when everybody knows the words and the songs. Yeah, and, and the songs are great. And, you know, I, I actually honestly, my, my you know, it, it doesn't quite do this as well as Mary Poppins. But um, you know how the whole thing of when you watch it as a child, you enjoy it on one level and you watch it on another level as an adult. Well, in, in when I watched The Sound of Music as a child, I obviously liked the the whole idea of the sort of authoritarian, disciplinarian father who's regimented his family into this insane kind of militaristic, yes. you know, and, and Julie Andrews cutting through all that and sort of getting them play clothes and getting them out climbing trees and, do, you know, that, that that was fun, you know, and obviously the these are my few of my favourite things and all that kind of stuff. But then when, when I watch it now, I just think it's... it's there are two things I love about it. One is, um, and it makes me tear up when I watch it, you know, when Christopher Plummer sort of finally breaks and he's like, you brought music back into this house. And it's kind of, you know, I, I, I tear up whenever I watch it, that scene. It's incredibly moving. Well, because you recognise yes. as an adult the humanity within yeah. him well, and why he, he is the way grieving. he is. He was grieving. He was, you know, yeah. and, and it was, and I think it's done beautifully. And then the other thing I love about the film is the sort of melancholy undertone, as you mentioned, the Nazis. But, you know, the whole thing with Austria you know, and the Angelus and all the rest of it. And his sort of gleefully defined, like, you know, that sequence where they're in the, the music festival at the end and they sing Edelweiss and it's basically a a song of defiance against yes, the Nazis. It's 100%. such a brilliant moment. And um, and then, of course, actually, you know, people who say, oh, the sound of music is saccharine and sentimental. No, it has some seriously dark things in it, like Rolf, okay? That whole subplot, it's like he's in love with Liesl and you think it's terribly cute and so on, but he gets brainwashed by the Hitler youth. And the next thing you know, at the end, you know, he has a choice. It's like, you know, it says, you come with us, come with us, and, and he doesn't. You know, and he makes his choice. And I, I've always, as an adult, I watch the film and I think, actually, that's quite a powerful moment. Yeah, it is. 100%. You know, it's 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 a very, you know, that there has to be a point where you take a stand. And, you know, it's it's very, it's actually very sad. So, you know, and of course, you know, that, that isn't necessarily what you come away with when you, but it is a beautiful film. I, I, I love think it's film. got lots of very neatly wired through 
all weaved through undertones that yeah. are quite complicated. I, also I like, think it's a much more yes. complicated film. And I like the sexual cool. jealousy subplot with the Baroness. And oh, the, yeah. you know, that's actually brilliant. She tries but she's very human, though. Yes. And she's not cruel. No, well, the thing I like about it is this. It would be very easy to paint her as sort of a, this incredibly bitchy, manipulative. And she does try and manipulate, no question about it. But... In quite a, in a, a way, reasonable in, way. In, in a way that ultimately you think, okay, actually, she's lonely too. Yes. And I, you kind of understand why... She, do you see what I mean? So it's it's not done in a horrible way no. and it's not done at the expense of her. Do you see what I mean? And I, I like that about the film too. It's interesting how your perspective changed watching it with different viewings. Because I remember watching it when I was young and looking up to, to is it Liesl? Liesl, yeah. yes. To Liesl and going, oh my gosh, I want to be like that when I grow up. And her whole, 16 I am 16 seven, going on 17, 17 yeah. yeah. And that whole thing with Ralph and all this kind of stuff. And then I remember watching it when I was like 22, 23 and being like, oh my God, she is such a baby. What is she doing? <laughs> Why is she and this guy is clearly just a bit of a and not that interesting and why would you do that and my perspective changed so much that's very interesting watching actually. it through multiple viewings that's actually very very interesting and the relationship to characters because you, you you aspire to be someone and then you realize how young they and are naive they are it's odd and and actually you're right because it, it that is actually a very good point because of course what a teenage girl may look for in a guy at that age will you know five to seven years later it's totally different so it's, it's actually very very interesting that you have that perspective on it i think yeah and also it's like whenever you watch certain films you find yourself hating the parents initially and then you get older and you're like i agree with every single yes. decision they've made like they are making the right decision right now these kids are disrespectful it's actually really funny i mean just total total tangent okay, That's okay. there's nothing to do with musicals new series of stranger things which i've just watched yes a i haven't scene... seen the third one yet oh haven't you okay Mm, is this a spoiler? This isn't really a spoiler. It's okay. Okay. So there's just But one... maybe for you, if you haven't seen it yet, because it's very recently out, then just skip ahead two minutes. Well, it's just to do with what you were saying about, as an adult, you completely agree with the parents. There's a particular scene in, in Stranger Things Series 3 where one character reacts a certain way to, you know, teenage character. And I was just sitting there as I was like, you know what? Damn right. He was disrespectful. You, know? <laughs> so, you become that like yeah. crotchety old man, like a Clint Eastwood character. Like, yeah. get off my lord. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah absolutely. I mean, but for me, so Julie Andrews was such a huge pinnacle of, of musicals growing up because I, she has an amazing voice. Even today, like um, my partner and I were talking about this in the car yesterday. She has a beautiful, classically trained voice yes. that has the ability to do so many things, but carries emotion as well. Yes, it does. Which you don't often have with people who are classically trained. Yes. And so um, in Mary Poppins, there's one song which I will sing to my kids, which is the Stay Awake song, the oh, Lullaby. Yes. Oh, I yes, love the, the that reverse song. psychology song. Oh, it is a bit dark when you yeah, think about brilliant. it. <laughs> well, you know, obviously, I think we've talked about Mary Poppins a few times on the podcast, but I, I mean, we'll just say that it is one of the greatest films ever made, and I'll brook no argument with that. Uh, again, for the reasons we already discussed, which is to do with seeing it differently as an adult when you're a child. But just to focus on Julie Andrews specifically, I think her performance in that film is remarkable because 
Uh, she somehow manages to. She's not. She's not actually a sort of soppy, sentimental character at all in it. Yeah, and at I, all. And, and, she's got a bit of an edge, you know. And I mean, not as much of an edge as the books have. But I think I, I really like that about the film. And I like. I love how no nonsense she is. I love how you know. And you know, at the end, you have that lovely line about you know, practically perfect people don't let sentiment interfere with their. You know, yes. it's it's brilliant. And she's perfect for that role. And and the trouble with the new one with Mary Poppins Returns. You see, I got to tell you, I don't think we ever. I, I think we mentioned this uh, on a, a on a podcast in series one, and we never actually covered it. We said, "Oh, we're going to talk about Mary Poppins Returns," and then we didn't. Okay, yes. so I'm just going to mention it briefly now. Um, it was good. It wasn't great. Okay, and the problem that I had with it was this: with the original Mary Poppins, you come away from that and you feel like it's an effortless film. Now, obviously it wasn't effortless. A lot of thought went into it. A lot of hard work went into it. But it feels, it's a souffle of a film. You know, you have that kind of let's go fly a kite moment and it's, it feels, it feels just so perfectly kind of like, natural. absolutely natural, mm. effortless light and such a brilliant metaphor for joy. In this one, have you seen it? No. Okay. I'm, I'm just going to say this then. There's a, they try to do a similar thing at the end, okay? And the trouble is, I feel like I was sitting there watching it, and I, I was thinking to myself, I can see you're really trying. I can see that you all the right ingredients are there. I can see that you're really making an effort, and I know what you're going for with this. I imagine there was immense pressure to end yeah. it on a memorable high note. Yes. Same as the last one. But if the story doesn't naturally lend itself to that, and you have to force it, it's never going to ring true. Well, I just think that, you know, you, lightning doesn't strike twice is kind of how I feel about it. Yes. And, and it's not that the story doesn't work exactly. It's just that it's just that, it, I mean, it's, it's an OK film. It's OK. And some one or two of the songs are, are again, are quite good. But, you know, obviously uh, Sherman Brothers songs in the original are such a high watermark. You're just never going to get that Unbelievable. high. Unbelievable. I mean, you know, so so it, they're, they're good, but they're not great. And then and then there's one or two other things that obviously they deliberately echo, I think, the structure of Mary Poppins in the same way that. Um, with Star Wars, with The Force Awakens, deliberately echoed a lot of the original Star Wars. To sort well, of, you know, yeah, Alex and I were talking that for us, it's almost the the recent series of Star Wars are remakes of the originals. The, in terms uh, of what they're trying okay, to well, do. Well, this is a good tangent, which we'll have to pick up on another time when we do a Star Wars podcast. But, <laughs> I, but I will just say that's true of The Force Awakens. I don't think it's true of The Last Jedi. That would be my my point on that. You can't see it, but our sound man is nodding vigorously. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so okay. Yeah. So, so we, next musical, because you take from your list, because I've been very much okay. Well, we've gone all over the place here, but we haven't really talked about. Uh, we talked about okay. We just quickly talk about Busby Berkeley. Okay. okay. Um, now, in the nineteen thirties, they had a, a whole raft of terrific musicals: Gold Diggers of nineteen thirty three, Footlight Parade, Forty Second Street, a whole bunch of others. Um, have you seen any of those? No, no. I'm okay, not so I'm just going to tell you a li- what made them so famous. Okay, yes. they would have these amazing choreographed numbers, which were often kind of you'd see some sort of geometrically perfect and symmetrical kind of like overhead shots of girls in swimming pools forming shapes, and you, you've probably seen some clips actually. Yes. Okay, but the other remarkable thing was they would often set these musical numbers on the stage in a theatre, but then to basically essentially show you the power of cinema they would then the camera would go onto the stage and you'd see them dance around and then the, as the number progressed you would go into the back of the theater and into and into worlds that the audience in the theater couldn't possibly be seeing yes okay and that was what made the, the that was their trademark they they did this incredible thing where it's like well the audience can't possibly be seeing that how can we be now this is something you couldn't yeah. get as an element of musical theater exactly yes and so, and of course, that's one of the, this is just one of many reasons why, you know, the 1930s were the first golden era of Hollywood, the second being the 70s. Anyway. Yeah. So here's the thing. 
In the Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, it opens with a musical number that's a deliberate tribute to Busby Berkeley musicals. Do you remember oh, yes, when, I know. when she comes out, Kate, Kate Capshaw. Capshaw comes out and she sings, uh, comes out of the dragon, and then the camera goes into the dragon and into this other big stage with all these dancers and everything. And it's and, and you think, okay, where are we now? That can't possibly be in the nightclub. Yes. So it's a deliberate tribute to Busby Berkeley. That's amazing. Say. So I just wanted to sort of mention them quickly. Well, because for me, when I started watching musicals, which is probably 15 years after that film period maybe 20 right is things like fred astaire ah, funny you, face again fred, ginger rogers fred astaire, was, fred astaire and uh, ginger rogers next on my list actually aha nailed top it top hat yes top hat's an amazing thing and also see the reason why i have this influence on my life is very much from my grandma so she loved all the old era she had a huge crush on carrie grant so she had all these like vhs sets mm-hmm. with all these old movies that she recorded this is back in the day before technology was the way that it was, <laughs> where people used to record movies when they came on TV by putting a VHS oh, I used to set do that. in I used them. To do that. Yeah, but people who are listening may never have done that. Strange to think about, but true. So she had all of these things and tapes going back into the 80s and stuff with all these old movies in, and I used to sit and watch them. So Top Hat was definitely one of them, which she actually took me to see in the theatre. Oh, Very the stage version. Yeah. Oh, excellent. excellent. Very different experience, but amazing songs. Well, also just on the... I mean, Fred Astaire, Fred, there was obviously the other one I really like that, that doesn't get mentioned as much as Swing Time, yes. which I actually really like too. But I just want to say this about Top Hat. That's one of my... Again, that's one, it would be in my top 100 movies of all time, favourites, okay? The thing I like about Top Hat is pure escapism. Yes. Okay, it's not addressing anything socially particularly it's just it's just good fun and it's a nice frothy romantic comedy uh, you know all's fair in love and war no what's it what's, what's the line um all's fair in love and war and this is revolution <laughs> yes <laughs> i love that line but um and then some of the songs in it are lovely i mean you know obviously the dancing cheek to cheek and so on which is just so Classic. iconic and and it's actually used in other films too like they use it quite memorably i think in the english patient at one point and uh, so yes i do really like that um Let's quickly mention also, um, well, we've, we've talked a bit about, obviously we've mentioned Sound of Music, we've talked a bit about Rodgers and Hammerstein, but they have others, you know, Oklahoma, that, you know, there's, there was a whole bunch of them in the 50s. Oh, which, which was kind of my favourite era for musicals, I'm yeah. not going to lie. Well, the thing that's interesting about those musicals, including Oklahoma, um, they, what they did, they were competing with television, you see. So that was when they introduced CinemaScope and they introduced, um, you know, obviously not just in musicals, but in, you know, films like The Robe and so on, all the big biblical epics. Yes, yes. Um, to sort of the scale, the scale of the thing. And I sometimes think I was born slightly too late. Yeah. Because, I mean, I grew up in the 80s, but I, w- I kind of wish I'd grown up in the 50s as far as films are concerned, because yeah. because that really was something of a, of a golden era. For, you had a for golden women. era for music in the 80s, yeah. I think. Early 80s late 70s but i think i agree with you on films that year for films because my favorite musical probably from that era is seven brides for seven brothers which is brilliant like when they build that house in a musical scene you're like oh my god well the thing is they kept doing a lot of those set pieces would be kind of one-upmanship you know (laughs) kind of how can we make this more elaborate but but that was great because it's what's cinema you know it's you know and um you know the the other thing the other one I just want to mention actually jumping ahead a bit is Oliver. Yes. Because <gasps> that's got to be one of the best musicals ever. Yeah. Well, I'll say this about Oliver. Okay. Um 
I still have a slight vendetta against it. Is this just because it's not the original David Lean one? No, 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 no. Okay, well, that's not a vendetta because I, I do, I do prefer the David Lean version. That's true. See, and that's, I prefer the musical. That's not the reason. The reason is that it beat two thousand and one A Space Odyssey to Best Picture at the Oscars, uh, and I don't think it deserved to. Well, I don't know. For me, Ron Moody's performance as Fagin might be one of my all-time favourite performances in a musical. It's absolute genius. I think, agree Like, thinking about it, I'm not sure I've ever watched a musical where I 100% believed that that actor was actually that character and also forgot it was a musical and believed that character would have actually been yeah. singing, which is the difference. Yes. Does that make sense? It does. Because a lot of times in musicals, them going into a number makes me go, oh, yeah, it's a musical. But you see, in Oliver Twist... Uh, sorry, big pardon, in Oliver, they do excise a lot of the plot okay from the novel yes but um but it doesn't really matter because those numbers are just astonishing i mean there's it is one of the great you like i would i would put it on a par with mary poppins in terms yes. of iconic songs that just are absolute earworms the first time you hear them i mean i showed it i remember i showed it to my children um i don't know i can't remember when this was well actually the young the oldest one had already seen it but the youngest one it was the first time you'd ever watched it this was two or three years ago and one viewing and he says to me, I can't get those songs out of my head. I've heard them once. They're amazing. Like what? A, you know. Okay, this is a secret admission I will make, though. So Who Will Buy is a great... I, yeah. That song is amazing when everybody comes on and off. Yeah, I like, really like the that. stage projection, like as a producer, that must have been unbelievably complicated. complicated yes, because yes, it is create. based on a stage production. You're right. It's unbelievable. But my brother and I used to watch Oliver and we did not like Oliver. We thought oh. he was this little wimpy brat and oh, we liked the artful dodger. He was our, he was our guy. And so when he used to th- sing, where is love? I used to be like, "Ugh, you sad, sad, sad child. Stop being so sad. Whereas I, now as okay. an adult, I'm like, Oh, poor child. Who actually, actually I'll tell you what, them? there is, there's, it, I don't think I ever reacted that way to it. Cause I think I'm a bit more of a softy than you are. <laughs> But but I I will say this about Oliver the um, there is no doubt in my mind because I I saw Oliver when I was I don't know seven or something but I remember I watched it as an adult and it's really traumatic yeah 100%. and I I have this whole it's what I call you know the Oliver Twist syndrome is children in peril it's horrible I mean I I I get that when I watch something like Slumdog Millionaire. Or something like more recently, uh, what was that one which had Nicole Kidman in? It's based on the true story. Lion? Yes, Lion, where that the first the first kind of movement of that film with a you know the ch- lost child in you know and it was in Calcutta. And it was just like <laughs> my dad and I have a rule: no kids, no animals. We don't really like to watch movies with them in the lead role because they're either going to get in severe peril or die. Okay, well you see, I have the opposite rule because I like to be traumatized. Oh, no, I can't do it. Yeah, no, I, I, it makes me feel human, alive. You know. I I don't like experiencing emotions in real life. I like to experience them when I watch films, you see. Okay, I think we're going to have to do more than one podcast on this. So can I... I, When did this musical come out? Greece. Oh, Greece, 1978? Should we make that the last one for now? Yes, because it's it's we, moving we should, into we that should do, new We should do a more a one more on yeah. modern musicals. Definitely, so Greece for me was a huge turning point in musicals because I think it made musicals relevant to a new the next generation. Yes, after the fifties, does yes. that make sense? Yes. So it was a huge because it was talking about sex, it was talking about drugs, it was talking about rock and roll, which were big topics in that era. Yes, um, and it was that you see the change between, for example, the Pink Ladies. Yes. In the way they dress and how everybody else dresses, particularly Rizzo, who is 
as they say in The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, tough and tender. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like yes. how she's wearing a pencil skirt, which is very different how the other girls are dressed in their poodle skirts, but highly much more sexualized, having to deal with possibly a pregnancy, what that looks like. These are huge things. Can we pick up on this? Because I think if we end this one now, yes. right, let's pick up on Grease Part 2 and do it. Let's do a part two with modern musicals as well. Okay, I'm happy to do that. So... That means next week you'll be able to hear us continuing to talk about the sultry sounds of music in film. So from me, Samantha Stephen. From me, Simon Dillon. We'll see you next time on The Tangent Tree.